Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Flows right from 2 Samuel 11, which is where we were last week. By the way, if you're, you're visitors, you want to get part one of this, if this is part two, we always have CDs on the wall that are free. You can take of, of um, this week's sermon, last week's sermon, the last four sermons. Uh, they're always produced and out there, usually within... Uh, 15 minutes of the service being over, uh, so by the time you've drunk a cup of coffee, it's there. Of course, you can always download it. It's always on the Internet uh, at the same time, so you can, you can uh, get it there on your smartphone. But as, as we think of going from 1 Samuel 11 to 1, excuse me, 2 Samuel 11 to 2 Samuel 12, let me ask you to think about a, a bad, tragic occurrence in your life that left you feeling hopeless, without hope. Uh, maybe a time where you got caught drinking after your parents came home and you had told, promised them there would be no drinking while they were gone. Or perhaps the time when you looked down at your phone for just a second and then the head-on collision killed the person in the other car. Or the time you got caught looking at pornography after you knew it was wrong. Or the time you got caught cheating and it could change your career. Or the time you got caught lying, deceiving those that really mattered. The time you ignored the warnings, and fell into an affair. How do you come back from something like that? When you feel like your world has just crumbled and there's, there's no hope, you know, you're done. When, when, you, when you begin to feel that, you understand what's happening between chapter 11 of 2 Samuel and chapter 12. In, sec, in chapter 11, David has caught committing adultery and then lying and deceiving people about it. And then he gets caught committing murder. And so when I literally, literally turn the page from chapter 11 into chapter 12, I'm expecting him to go into court and be tried and convicted and punished perhaps even killed there should be death damnation hell in chapter 12 that's what I would expect to see and yet there's some of that and yet it goes beyond that to renewal and restoration that can only happen by the grace of God. And I don't want us to miss that. Because we're where David is. We all get caught at times doing bad stuff. And we're left with that hopeless feeling. How do we come back from that kind of scenario? Uh, overwhelmed really by the love of God as I look at this chapter. And it's more, than, it's more than unmerited favor. 
Grace is more than something for nothing. Grace is God's love upon those who deserve to get caught and go to hell for their sin. It's, it's this grace of God is, is coming to people like you and me that should be convicted, tried, and punished. And yet we are allowed to go on with God's mercy. I want us to see that as we look at chapter 12 this morning. I've divided it into three stories for us. It starts off with the story of a blind man. Now, who is the most blind man in the room? A blind person is not necessarily the person who cannot see. But the blindest person in the room is the person who will not see. And that was David. David would not see his sin. We saw when he was committing adultery, somebody came and warned him, you know she, meaning Bathsheba, you know she's somebody's daughter, right? You know she's somebody else's wife, right? You know that they have a right by law to pick up the first stone and stone you, right? But he's blind to his sin He's blind to the consequences, and he goes on with it. That's what I mean by a blind man. He was just refusing to see he was living contrary to the law of God, contrary to the standard of the morality of the day, and he was doing what he wanted to do regardless. So God sends in Nathan, chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and he said, There are two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. So, first thing you pick up on, Nathan the prophet's coming to David, and he says, I'm going to tell you a story. And it's really not a story. I mean, he's, he's presenting it as a real scenario because he's coming before the king, and the king is not only king, he's judge of the land, so it's, it would be natural. You would bring a judgment case before the king and say, you know, I, I need somebody to make a ruling on this. I got two men, and I got a, a problem. So he's bringing this to David. But before we even get there, let's stop and think about the fact that we've got a God who sent somebody in. You know, one of the things I was taught, a deistic principle of, in school, public schools that I grew up in, in, in Greenville, was that, that God was like a clockmaker. Yes, he created the world, but he created the world like a clockmaker creates the clock. And then he winds it up and he sits it aside and God doesn't intervene, he just lets it tick tock. Well, that's not the story you get here. God is the one intervening into David's life. God is not just sitting back in heaven saying, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let it go on. This blind man refuses to see his sin. No, I'm not going to let that occur. So God sends someone to David. And God may be sending someone to you. It may be a parent. It may be a spouse. It may be a friend where somebody says, you know, hey, wake up in there you're missing something that's really obvious and you might not say it quite like Nathan but 
the Lord is speaking through you to someone else to warn them, to admonish them. That's what brothers and sisters and parents do. We admonish, we encourage, we, we seek to bring people back on track. Well, that's what Dave, uh, Nathan is trying to do for, Nathan, uh, for David. So he says there's two men. There's a rich man and a poor man. Verse 2, the rich man had great many flocks and herds. But the poor man, no, had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children, and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, just so you get the story, rich man, a poor man. The rich man has not just one, not just two. He has a flock. Actually, it's in the plural. A great many flocks and herds. He's got a lot of animals. Flocks of lambs and goats and chickens, I don't know, herds of maybe camels and donkeys and cows, and it just, he's, he's got a lot. And then there's a poor man. He's only got one lamb, and it's so treasured by him that he eats and sleeps with it. Now, the story goes on, and a, an old friend comes to see the rich man, a traveler, Shows up and says, man, I need, I, you know, it's, I need to entertain. I need to fix a good meal for my traveling friend. But I don't want to go get any of the food I've got in my flocks or my herds. You ever met somebody like that? You know, I, 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 know, I know a, a guy that made, he's, he's seven-figure income. So he makes over a million dollars every year. He's got stocks and bonds and investments and you can go to him and you can say hey um we're doing this little mission trip you know and we would have to raise all our funds could 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 you spare maybe a little bit uh no not really i i don't i don't think i got anything right now really well could you not just maybe sell one stock you know you've got stocks and bonds it's like, no, you don't understand. See, yeah, I have that stuff, but I, in my game plan, I have to save that stuff. It's safe, it's, it's, I have reasons for that. I got all this. You probably ran into these people like I did. They can't give up one little thing. And so this rich man says, I know somebody who's got something. It would be perfect. I, I, that's the cutest little lamb. I bet it tastes good. And so I don't know how he does it. Maybe when the, the poor man's out doing something, he steals it, goes, gets it, cooks up that lamb, and he gives it to his traveler. Great, delicious meal. That's the story David's just heard. Rich man, poor man, what do I do? You're the judge. Verse 5, then David's anger burned greatly. So he, he's working up a rage greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man, 
who has done this deserves to die. Yeah, you know, he's, he's stolen someone else's precious property. Capital offense in David's mind, he deserves to die. Verse 6, but before he dies, he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold. That was according to the law. If you, stole, if you were a thief, you were supposed to restore it four times. So he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. So stop again and think that through. The man deserves to die. He's committed an offense. He's stolen someone else's private property. It didn't belong to him. It hasn't dawned on him yet that David stole somebody else's wife. That David is a rich man that has flocks and herds and Uriah was a poor man with only one wife that was precious and ate and slept with him. It hasn't dawned on him that this story is about him. And then verse 7, Nathan says, and I'm sure he, maybe he said it like kind of couched down. This way I would do it. In all due respect, king, you're the man. You're the man. Because the king can off with your head and nobody will know. But obviously more that's going on than just Nathan saying, David, you're the man. The Holy Spirit is convicting David's heart. God, like I said, is showing up. And he is the one who has sent David, Nathan to David. So verse 7, Nathan then said to David, you're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. And he said, I'm not saying this, God's saying it. Don't blame me, God sent me. God wants you to know you're the man. It is, and then notice, it, verses 7 through uh, 9 just really illustrate the senselessness of sin. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel. And it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing this evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you've killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, stop and think about that for just a minute. God is saying, what you have done makes no sense. Who were you? You were a shepherd boy. I grabbed you. I anointed you. I raised you up to be king. And I gave you both the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I united your kingdom. And in that union, I gave you wives and I gave you herds and I gave you flocks. And he goes on and says, and if you had just said, hey, not enough, you want a little bit more, he said, I would have gladly given you more. I was a God answering your every prayer, so why did you say you needed Uriah's wife? Why? And don't, don't miss the word despised, because it's there twice. You want to you catch it? Verse 9, why have you despised 
the word of the Lord. Then again in verse 10. Now therefore the sword which shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. David, your problem is you have trampled on both commandment and commander. And for what reason do you sin? Doesn't make sense. You had everything anybody could dream of, and I would have gladly given you more if it were not enough. It was enough. And you sin. Strong language to say, you were in a rage, David, over that rich man who stole a little lamb from the poor man. That's just a story. If you think you were mad, how mad should I be at you right now? Why have you despised my commandments? Why have you despised me? You knew my law. I gave you my law. I've taught you that law. Well, how do you come back for something like that? And you think this story, let grace teach our hearts to fear God before we jump so quick to say, grace, all my fears relieved. Has grace taught us to fear the commander, to keep the commandments? as well as rejoice in the redemption because we have so messed up. David here is being taught, you didn't fear me. Rather, you chose to despise me. There was no reverence to my command or my commandments. That's the story of a blind man. A man just refuses to see what really matters to God. Do we, do we get it? Second story, a story of a blessed man, verses 13 and 14. Well, he tells him there's consequences for sin. I'm just kind of skipping over verse 10. It says, now for the, the sword which shall never depart, the sword will never depart from your house because you've despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So you killed with a sword. I'm going to let that sword be seen in your house. Many will die. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, Behold, I raise up evil against you from your own household. I'll take, even take your wives before your eyes. Give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. That happens later on in 2 Samuel. You see the rest of the book is consequences to this sin. So I won't jump there. Verse 12, indeed you did it secretly. I'll do this thing before all Israel. You tried to be real deceptive and quiet. I'm going to make it public. Verse 13, now we get to this story of a blessed man. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Stop there. How rare is that? How many people this week did you hear say, I have sinned against the Lord? It's really a rare statement these days. First of all, that we, we get we've sinned. Secondly, we get that it was against the Lord. That breaking the commandment takes us back to despising the commander. David gets it. He is a blessed man because God has come to him, spoken to him, and he gets it. You don't have to have a lot about confession here because he gets it. When we get it, we can move on. And that's why he's so blessed because he gets it right off. David said to Nathan, I have sinned 
against the Lord. And so Nathan says to David, okay, trust that. The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. What did David do? He committed capital offenses. As you go through the Ten Commandments, the, the first seven commandments were always capital offenses. To have another God, to have an idol, number one, number two. To blaspheme God, number three. To not set apart the Sabbath day and remember it and keep it holy. To, um, to, to not honor your, your mom and dad if you're an incorrigible child. Stoning, capital offense. Sixth command, murder. Seventh command, adultery. Those were all capital offenses in the national state of Israel. And David had committed making himself God. He's breaking the first commandment. He's definitely breaking the sixth commandment. He's definitely breaking the seventh commandment. He's despising God's words. He's probably breaking third, fourth commandment. He's making his word... He has committed capital offenses. Even though he is the law of the land as king, he should be taken outside the city. The offenders should take the stones and they should throw them on David's body until he's dead. And Nathan comes along and says, oh, so you get it. You get that you have sinned and that it's against the Lord. Okay, well then God has authorized me to tell you, you won't die. See how big that is? That's huge. That he's been granted that kind of mercy and forgiveness. Um, doesn't mean he won't have to suffer consequences. Verse 14, however, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Third commandment's being broken. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. So this child that was born through that adulterous affair is going to die. He's already born. He's already, let's say, about a year old, perhaps. And David's been carrying this sin. God says, there are going to be consequences. That child's not going to live as an illegitimate child. He, he's going to die. But you're going to be forgiven. I want us to stop and just think about that a minute. It's a miracle of grace. I grew up in a very ritualistic church, and... We do ritual here from time to time. And, and, and matter of fact, even in our order of worship this morning, Joe got up here and it's, it's, it's labeled there, prayer of confession and intercession. Sometimes we'll put right after that, prayer of pardon. That's the ritual that's pretty standard in a lot of evangelical churches. That you have a time in worship where, where you confess you're a sinner and you're in need of grace. And so if we, it was a responsive reading, we would all read that, Something to the effect, yes, Lord, I have sinned. I've not done the things I ought to have done, and I've done things I ought not have done. And we confess that. And then we move on to this part in the service where we're given a pardon of grace. And we read about God's mercy and forgiveness. And to me, sometimes it's like, check. Check that off. And what I want to stop and ask do you ever still feel the goosebumps? Do you still get this sense of, that's a miracle of grace. I 
should have died. I despise the law and the lawgiver. And there are plenty of people who know enough of my offenses to pick up the first stone. I don't want us to, to trivialize the grace of God. It's, it's so rich and so significant. We've sinned against the Lord and he has demonstrated us the grace. There's a son in this story who dies as a consequence to David's sin. There's the son of David dies. There's the son of David, New Testament, who is Christ, who dies for every sin. And I didn't want us to miss that analogy, to miss that thought. So I've given some verses. Let's just look at a few and just remember again this miracle that God gives us. First uh, Peter 3.18 First one I chose. First Peter three eighteen. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Think through that. Christ died. Why? For our sins for sins once for all he is the just he's dying for the unjust he's the innocent son of god who didn't deserve death but chose it as a substitute for us so that he might bring us to god having been put to death in the flesh made alive in the spirit another passage look at second corinthians 5 21 He made him who knew no sin, knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then one more, Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. My point is this. We deserve to be cursed. We deserve to die. We deserve damnation. Christ takes all of that for us. Every time we sin, a son had to die for our forgiveness and redemption. The Son of God stepped in. It says, I will die in your place. I'll take your curse. I'll take the penalty that's due you. And I'll let you go free. That's a blessed man. And I don't want us to ever get so into the ritual that we, we lose the sense of how special it is to be chosen of God and to be forgiven and cleansed. How do we get back from that sinful condition? We don't get back without Christ. There is no hope apart from Christ. Because the sin is against God. 
the creator, the lawgiver. It's not just against one another. Well, third story, a story of the blind man, the blessed man, and then a bound man. Verses 15 through 31, the story moves on from the sun God strikes to the sun God loves. Verse 15, Nathan went to his house, then the Lord struck the child. That Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. So it doesn't strike him immediately, makes him sick, sick unto death. David therefore inquired of God for the child. Verse 16, and David fasted and went, and he lay all night on the ground. The elders of the household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground. But he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. And then it happened on the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while he, the child was still alive, we spoke to him. He wouldn't listen to our voice. Now then, can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived the child was dead. So David said, Child dead? You know, and they kind of probably nod their head. And they said, Yes, he's dead. So David arose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to church, worshipped, but then came to his own house and requested that they set food before him. And he ate. And the servant said to him, What is this thing that you've done? I mean, they're basically dealing with, David, you've turned on its head, uh, rejoicing in grief. This doesn't make sense. You're supposed to rejoice with your children while they are alive. While your child was alive, you're not rejoicing, you're fasting and praying. You're weeping. So much, and you put everybody out of your mind, and all you do is weep and pray. Your child's alive. Your child dies, you get up, go to church, and start singing and rejoicing. You should be grieving. What's, what's up? You know, it, this doesn't make sense. But what David says, wait, 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 you're, you're missing the point here. God came and told me this was, this happens as a result, as a consequence of my sin. I understood that, but I also understood God is a God of grace, and he has surprised me so many times with grace that I thought perhaps once more. And so I prayed, and I prayed, and I refused food, I gave everything, perhaps once more. God will give grace. But he didn't. And the child died. It's, it's, God is God. Blessed is the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. But still, blessed be the name of the Lord. He said, I'm not suicidal because God has extended me to grace. He extended grace to me. It's an understanding of, of God being sovereign in control, consequences to sin, that it's, it's His authority to give grace as needed. So that's, all, that's all I'm doing. Is I'm just, just a man now who gets it. And we need to get it too. I'm a blessed man. He says, now, as far as my son's concerned, heaven's a one-way street. You can't come from there here. But we can go from here to there. He says, so I can still see my son. He gives us this wonderful passage about there can be a reunion in heaven of someone that you've already lost. 
I can go there by God's grace. I can't pray him out of heaven back here. So we, so we just need to move on. It's time to worship and praise the God who keeps my son. The God who struck my son is the same God who keeps my son. And it's the same God who keeps me. And it's all by grace. Because that's the blessing of being in God's care. Sometimes we're afraid of some of the ends of that. Instead of just receive the blessing that it is. And then the story ends uh, verses 24 through 25, with verse 24, David comforted his wife, so they have another son, his name is Solomon, also named Jedidiah, is another name for him, so that's 24 and 25. Then verse 26, let me just read it fast, 26 through 31, now Job fought against Rabah, the sons of Ammon, remember that war that's been going on now, I guess a year or two, uh, and he captured the royal city, Job sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabab, I have even captured the city waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together, camp against the city, capture it, and I will capture the city myself, and it will be named after me. So David gathered all the people, he went to Rabab, fought against it, and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold, in it was precious stone, and he placed it on David's head, and he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts, and he also brought out all the people and basically made them all slaves. Okay, it's like, get this, got that. It just sounds a little anticlimactic. You've been fighting this battle a year or more. People have been losing lives. You finally capture the royal city. You're about to take down a people group, the Ammonites, once and for all. And as, as you go after that, it's like, David, do you want to be a part of this? David said, yeah, I'll come. Comes, bam, they're done. Puts his crown on, goes back. It's like, there's not a lot to that. And when you see that kind of thing happening in Scripture, it's like, why is that, that not more important? Because that's not what God's trying to teach us. That he wins the battle. The real battle was a battle for his heart. Did through this, did he become a man after God's own heart? Did his character change? Was there a transformation to be more like Christ? You see, that mattered more in chapter 12 than tidying up this little military battle with the Ammonites. We need to think about God's concerns with us when he comes and says, you're the man, you've sinned. What's his concerns, that we go off and didn't have a successful life after that? That's really anticlimactic if that's what we think. No, his concerns are more that our hearts are transformed into a holy character. Have you understood your sin and your sin against me? Have you understood? And David says, to the people around him, do you not get this? this? This work of God, this work of grace? Do you understand the restoration? I was the king, remember back chapter 11, who was too lazy to go into this battle. Now I'm the king that just, oh yeah, I'm there. Quickly responding in new obedience. Why is the new obedience so easy it seems and so anticlimactic it's because God's already changed the heart 
and transformed it where his passions and concerns ought to fulfill his calling with holiness because of the grace God has wonderfully given. Well, I started the, this, the message saying, you know, imagine yourself in a bad place. How do you get back from that? How do you get back on track? David was in a bad place. How did he get back on track when you see it? I expected him to go to court and be convicted. He went to court and got acquitted. Someone else died in his place. There was restoration of his own heart through that. It wasn't about a set of religious rules being administered by religious leaders to get him back on track. It wasn't about jail time. It was about a renewed heart, a reformation on the inside. It was about a man getting that I have sinned against the Lord. And when that kind of renewal occurs, that's the best, it's the only sufficient behavior modification to new obedience, that a heart is changed. And sometimes we get trapped by all these other things. But if you really want to get on track, it's understanding who you've offended and saying, God, I have sinned against you. And God says, yes, good to hear. You will not die. I'm going to lay your sins on my son. I'm going to strike him instead of striking you. And I'm going to let you go free into a life of new obedience and glory and grace. When we had the Jubilee and we had the balloon man out there, you know, I, I thought about my life. It's like one of those deflated balloons. You give it to the balloon man and he exerts a lot of pressure and he twists and he ties and it's, and it's, it's like our lives. We're like sometimes just hopeless, deflated balloons. But in the hands of God, he twists and he ties and he puts pressure and he hands it back and it's so fun and so beautiful. That's God's grace to us. Just like the grace he gave to David. It's pretty cool. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a restoration of a bad sinner like us. Thank you for a man who gets that most